You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. This to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano. The producer for the Anarchist World This Week is Kelly Whitworth. you got any complaints? Send them to her. That's why we have producers. Now, she's been a great help all year. Without Kelly's assistance, I will just be another flower sitting in a corner. Nobody would listen to me. Not that anybody listens now. I've also got some bad news for you. The fact is that we will have an anarchist world this week, next week, the last uh, week of the year, and uh, we'll have it on the first week of 2023. It will be podcast. It will be. It'll be pre-recorded, so it won't be up to date with uh, what's happening. Maybe the world will come to an end during those two weeks, but you don't really need to know, do you? If it comes to an end, because you'll be dead and I'll be dead, but obviously it won't. Now, if you wonder what anarchism is all about, it's not about meanderings of an elderly, demented human being. Anarchism is about having a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people, as we see? around the world on a daily basis, inequalities in power and wealth. So what's the anarchist struggle? The anarchist struggles to devolve power, share power, possibly through direct democratic means, and to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. Some of the most conservative concepts I can think of. I can't think of why people think, you know, anarchism is somehow some type of radical philosophy. It's very conservative. It's about every human being being involved in the decisions which affect their lives. It's about every human being sharing in the Commonwealth. What is radical to me is people sacrificing their lives for a state, for a god, for a dictator, for a democratically elected you know, leader. I mean, that's radical. The fact that you're willing to sacrifice your life as anarchists... We don't go down that path. It's a load of bullshit. It really is. God, king and country. What a load of bullshit. Ultimately, we're all human beings. We may have different coloured skins. We may talk different languages. We may have a sec- different sexual orientation. We may be do this. We may be do that. We may have different cultural practices. But ultimately, we're all descended from the same woman in Africa. Extraordinary when you think about it with DNA analysis, when you think about it. So let's 
pull together as a people. Not as a nation, not as First Nations people, not as, you know, people who've got a different sexuality, not as somebody for different language, but let's pull together as a human beings. I know it's a radical concept, very radical. All right, like, I'd like to start off with public housing. I'm going to devote a lot of time to this today because it's becoming an issue, but it's been swept under the carpet very effectively. And for a number of reasons, and terminology is exceptionally important when we talk about the public housing issue, because, you know, housing is a human necessity. Whether you live in a cave or a bamboo structure or a Mac mansion on some hill somewhere surrounded by private security guards to keep the uh, hoi polloi out, the fact is that housing is an essential human you know, need, like food, water, essential human needs, personal security. Essential human needs, and I could get need, and I could go on and on. But unfortunately, housing, and I'm familiar with the situation in Australia, not as familiar in other parts of the world. Obviously, you can't be everywhere on top of everything. Housing is now a commodity. It's a commodity, especially since the neoliberal revolution that has swept the globe, not just Australia, but the globe. It's a commodity which people invest in. It's interesting when I talk to a lot of people in this country, the Chinese come up over and over and over and over again. It's quite tedious when you think about it. Now, there are investors in this country. There are private investors in this country. Some live in this country and some don't. And they come from all parts of the world. Because, see, what's happened in this country is that residential property, I'm not talking about you know, office buildings and factories and, you know, businesses. I'm talking about residential property. The residential property market was opened to the world as part of those neoliberal, and if you wonder what the word neoliberal stands for, it stands for deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, you know, globalisation. That's what it stands for. So this country's residential market was opened up to private investors from anywhere in the world. And obviously people with disposable income were looking for a return in what's described as a stable economy and a stable political situation. And obviously money flowed into this country, into the residential market. So what happens when money flows into the residential market? Or prices increase. So the fact is, we find ourselves in this situation not because somebody's ethnic origins or because they've invested. It's because government policy. And we elect the government, don't we? Well, with a little bit of assistance from the corporate sector. It was government policy which opened up the residential market. Now, if you go to Thailand, and I'm sure many Australians go to Thailand for a holiday, you cannot buy residential property unless you're a citizen of that country. And in many countries around the world, many sovereign nation states around the world, policies, policies are in place which prevent, to a significant degree, the explosion of property prices by opening up 
residential property to an international to international investment. So that's the first thing you've got to remember that we have a housing market which has been fueled to a large degree by government policies which has allowed anybody anywhere in the globe who's got the right amount of money to purchase residential property which has increased property prices. That's the first thing and that's the most important thing we need to remember. The second thing we need to remember is that only one-third of Australians actually own their own home. One-third of paying mortgages, and anywhere between 35 to 40% will be rest- renting for the rest of their lives. Now, something interesting about the Australian situation is not only is the residential market open to foreign investors, we also have legislation in place which actually rewards people for owning more than one home. That's called negative gearing. Now, could you imagine any other sovereign nation state actually rewarding people for owning more than one home when you've got homelessness and housing um, stress? Well, not even dictatorships do it, but in this country because... We are loyal followers of the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation mantra. And we'll do anything to turn a trick. You know, we're happy to get our hands and knees and lick somebody's boots to make a buck. And unfortunately, our political representatives, people we have elected, so don't blame them, blame yourself. We've just had a state election in Victoria, we've just had a federal election, and I'll talk about the pathetic housing policies they've put in place, pretending they're uh, going to do something about it. But the fact is, so you've got this second problem that is very difficult without the assistance of the bank of mum and dad for many Australians, residents and permanent, permanent residents and citizens, to actually put their foot in the housing market. So when you add all these things up, you find yourself in a particularly difficult situation in regards to accessing a basic human necessity, a roof over your head. And if you think, if you think not having a roof over your head is a basic human necessity, I encourage you to go and live on the streets for three or four days and try to find a urinal or a toilet when you need to go to one. Think about it and how you deal with the elements. So it is a basic human necessity. I'm sure maybe 99.99% of listeners would agree with that. So this is the current housing market. It is dominated by the private sector. It has been put on an upward trajectory by opening up the residential market to foreign investors. And every stop has been pulled out to ensure that the residential property market in this country continues to be dominated by the private sector through government legislation, 
negative gearing through government policy. Now, what do I mean by government policy? And as I've, I've explained in the past, and you most likely remember, that in a capitalist society, a private investment for private profit society, unless you have significant public elements competing in that particular sector with the private sector, the private sector will exploit every opportunity in order to maximise profits. That is the nature of the society we live in. It's all very well screaming and saying, oh, they're making super profits, they're exploiting us. The fact is, we as a people, maybe not you and me, you know, the minuscule, marginalised minority, you and me, don't accept it, but the majority of the population, let's be realistic, you know, accepts the private investment for private profit mantra in Australia in 2022. And I'm sure they'll accept it in 2023. So what has the government done at the state and federal level regarding housing, apart from opening up the residential market to foreign investment, which is, you know, um, put housing prices an upward trajectory, apart from passing legislation which rewards people, that's right, financially rewards people who own more than one home. Well, it has done everything possible to destroy the public housing sector. And the pin-up boy, the pin-up girl, regarding the destruction of the public housing sector is the Victorian state government. And it's quite tragic to see that public housing didn't even rate a mention, any significant mention, in the state election which was held last month. Nothing. So how has, what was the reason for the introduction of public housing? That's the first thing. And the second thing is, why has the sector been so degraded, so denigrated, that almost one in four of what's left of the public housing sector in Victoria remains empty despite tens of thousands of people on the public housing list. It's no longer a public housing list, but I'll I'll explain that in a minute. So, what is public housing? Now, when we formed public interest before corporate interests about five years ago, I personally was shocked, and it takes a little bit to shock me because I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of death and suffering because of the type of work I do in, you know, in the last 50, you know, five decades. I was shocked by how little understanding there was of the word public. When you use the word public, the private investment for private profit Propaganda, and it's nothing more than propaganda. That's the only way to deal with, you know, the human interaction and human experience. Dominated people's thinking, and most people didn't even know what the word public meant. And those that did thought that public was second rate, unhealthy, insecure, and the list goes on and on, whether it was public hospitals, public housing, whatever, public infrastructure. Just an extraordinary lack of insight into how the public sector was created. 
The public sector was created through the blood, sweat and tears of millions of people involved in reform movements and revolutionary movements in the 19th century and the early 20th century. When the state, concerned about its survival, and to a significant degree because of anarchist activity, concerned about its survival, moved into the area of providing services to the people they ruled. The fundamental purpose of the state is to maintain, was to maintain the power of the sovereign or the power today of the corporations which fundamentally rule the state and which set the parliamentary agenda. So public housing, let's get back to how it started. Well, those of you who are old enough to remember World War II, and there's a few listeners who are, will remember that when returned servicemen and women came back to Australia, there was a housing crisis. And they were put into temporary tents on the MCG, that's the Melbourne Cricket Ground, in the Botanic Gardens. And that was the impetus. That was the push to commence the debate about public housing. And when public housing was introduced in the 50s, and again, my, I'm talking about Victoria here, it was introduced on the basis that everybody who was not able to enter the private housing market, whether they were working or not working, was entitled to a house which was paid for its construction by the state. That's public housing. It means it's state-owned, state-managed. Now, just remember those two f- terms, state-owned and state-managed. Now, the public housing sector increased quite, quite dramatically in the 60s and 70s. And you will find that in Victoria and other states that almost 15% of the population was housed in public housing. So what's the beauty about public housing compared to private rentals? The key is security. Security of tenure. What that means in plain English, it means you can't be kicked out unless you don't pay your rent, which is set as 25% of your income. Right, security of tenure. It means that if you've got children, you can send them to the same schools. They have the same friends during as they grow up. They join the same sporting clubs. They're part of a community. And unlike the sixties and seventies, where mega blocks were set up, but by the time the eighties came round, people realised that there was no point that you needed to make public housing available throughout the country, throughout every major capital city, and that was done through a spot purchasing program where the state, and it's a state responsibility, purchased homes which then were put on the public housing list and these homes were purchased all around the state. And the idea was it was to integrate people who needed public housing with the rest of the community. So, what's happened? 
Now, I know this sounds a bit tedious, but I think it's important that we understand where we are and why we're here and how we can move forward. Because unfortunately, everybody involved in the public housing struggle, and it's a shrinking, marginalised minority, is finding it more and more difficult to break through the propaganda. And it is a propaganda. And I'll explain why. In the 1990s, in the early 2000s, this early this century, how does that sound? I like that, early this century. Policies were made at the state government level and the federal level to privatise public housing. That's right. Privatise public housing. Put public housing in the hand of the private sector. Now, many of the organisations which have now developed and mushroomed in the housing sector use terms like social housing, affordable housing, community housing. When you hear those three terms, you know, you know that that authority, that state government, that official that person fronting up for that sector is part of the private investment for private profit brigade. Even if they don't intend to make a profit, when they talk about that, it's about making a profit which is reinvested in the organisation. So what is the difference between public housing and affordable housing, social housing, community housing? And it's a difference our Prime Minister, Mr Albanese, who was brought up in public housing, is having difficulty grasping because he uses the terms, you know, interchangeable. And they're not interchangeable terms. Public housing is government-owned, government-managed. Social housing, affordable housing, community housing is privately-owned, privately-managed. Some by religious-based organisations, some by philanthropic organisations based on not-for-profit and some by people who are, want to make a buck as you do out of nursing homes. So, that's the dilemma. So how do you privatise something which in the past was relatively popular? You slowly degrade. That's right. You slowly degrade the service, the management, and you slowly degrade the infrastructure. You call it politically inspired neglect. Just a few days ago, you know, there was a 24-hour, you know, news, you know, blip, I call it a news blip, that almost one in four public houses... What's left of the public housing sector? And there's less than 62,000 left. What was left of the public housing sector? One in four in Victoria was empty. Empty. E-M-P-T-Y. Although there were tens of thousands on lists on an integrated, 
what's called an integrated waiting list in Victoria, which is public housing, social housing, commutable housing, affordable housing. Everybody's put on the same list. So in 2022, social housing, affordable housing, community housing and public housing is designated for people in an extreme situation, whether it's fleeing family violence, whether it's people with major psychiatric issues, whether it's people with major addictive issues. And when you put people in the same situation, well, obviously you're going to create issues, unlike the spot purchasing program in the 1990s. So... What's the difference? It's very simple. Public housing is based on the need. When you talk about social, community and affordable housing, they have rules. They pick and choose. It's a little bit like private health insurance and private hospitals. They pick and choose the low-hanging fruit because the low-hanging fruit is easier to pick. They pick and choose what they think are profitable customers, in inverted commas. They increase the rent. They have a whole variety of rules and regulations regarding the people that find themselves in that type of housing. But it looks like that state governments and the federal government has now embarked on a full-blown policy to privatise public housing creation and management. And management is exceptionally important. And it's all very well to blame the bureaucrats who manage the public health system, sorry, the public housing system, because there's one in four units empty when there are people on a waiting list and people sleeping rough but it's not their fault. If you underfund management, if you give management directives that create a public perception that public housing is just for desperate people, if you refuse to carry out repairs and you let areas break down, I mean, physically deteriorate, you begin to understand how the community, affordable and social housing sector, you know, continues to expand. And when you pass legislation that puts money into the creation of community, social and affordable housing, but ignores public housing, current public housing stocks and refuses to increase public housing stocks, you begin to realise the extent of the issue. It is a major issue and it will continue to be a major issue while we allow governments at the state and federal level to hoodwink us about what's happening They want to wash their hands of the state's responsibility to its citizens and permanent residents. And they want to put it on the, you know, the shoulders of the private sector, the private investment for private profit sector. 
because then they can say, oh, we've done what we can. We've allocated money to that sector. Well, there's nothing more we can do. Well, we can embark on a national spot purchasing program. National spot purchasing program by either state governments or federal government. Oh, the federal government. I mean, the federal government now has put its oar in the water. But what is it, what is it going to do? It's going to fund community affordable and private ha- community affordable, affordable and social housing sector. It's going to give that money to state governments to give to that sector, not giving that money to state governments to actually build public housing. And you will have noticed in the last few months since the federal the Labor federal government was was elected, the terminology has changed. You'll find on the government guild at ABC, the term public housing is verboten. You'll find that obviously in the commercial world, it doesn't even exist. And the fact is, we have allowed this to occur. That's right, you and me. I mean, I've done what I can, and the people who turn up at the vigils at Parliament House in Victoria every Thursday from 12 to 1 do what they can. I mean, four years ago we held a 10-day protest before the last state election and I stood against the uh, housing minister, Mr Foley, in the seat of, uh, was it, um, Albert Park. And the fact is that we put enough pressure on the government for them to promise they would build a 1,000 new public housing units. Did they build those units in the last four years? No. And the fact is, nothing's going to change unless more people become involved and more people demand public housing. State-owned, state-managed and adequate funding of construction, repairs and management. And that's the only way forward. If you want to decrease housing prices or even stabilise them, if you want to increase security for renters and decrease rents, you need a strong public housing sector which can compete in a mixed economy with the private sector. The greater the number of public homes or public houses, the less need for people to rent privately. The less need for people to rent privately, downward pressure on rents and rents decrease for people who don't want to be in public housing or who can't access it. At the same time as rents decrease, investors will pull their stock out of the market and sell it, but at a reduced price. So entry level entry-level prices for people who are trying to get into the housing market will actually drop, which gives people the opportunity to get into the housing market. So a strong public housing sector is a win-win situation for everyone except that 8% of Australians who make up the investment class who are involved in the negative gearing um, shenanigans. You listen to the Atticus World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scott, I'm hosting today's program. So why am I wasting all this time talking about public housing? It's an essential human need. Especially in an era of politically inspired neglect 
and an era of terminology which would make 19, George Orwell's 1984 seem like a kindergarten play. That's right. Things were so extreme there that it was obvious. In 2022, in little old Australia, the terminology is not obvious. And when people hear those words, social community affordable, they think it's all going to be solved because it's all public housing. It's not. Let's move on. I want to revisit the concept of class in Australia. And I have spoken about this about a year ago. And it was interesting. Class. Now, I don't think many Australians think this is a classless society, you know. You know, you look at class in an interesting... I look at class in terms of a 100 metres handicap race, you know. There are some people who start the race 10 metres from the end. That's a 100 metres race. And there are some people who start the race 100 metres from the end. And then there are some people who start the race 200 metres from the end. So life in Australia is a handicap race. And to a large degree, significant degree... What happens to you, what happens to you, the type of life you lead, basically is determined by where you were born, who your parents are, what schools you go to. So obviously class is a fundamental element of Australian society. Now a lot of people use 19th century terms to define class. And those terms are no longer relevant as far as I'm concerned. Things like working class, lump of proletariat, proletariat, middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class, ruling class. I mean, they roll off the tongue, but what do they actually mean mean in 21st century society? And again, as I said, I'm concentrating on Western society. What does it actually mean? Well, it doesn't really mean anything. Because you can be a plumber and you can be part of the investment class. You can be a bulk billing doctor and you don't have the disposable income to be part of the investment class. So a class system based on occupation is no longer relevant. But we need to define class in order to understand the type of society we live in. I think most people accept the concept that the 1% of Australians who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication are the ruling class. We don't have a ruling class which is based on a sovereign or allegiance to a sovereign of some type. But we do have a financial ruling class whose ability to determine parliamentary legislation and the fate of millions of people is the fact that they own and control huge amounts of institutions and interactions within Australian society. We call them the one percenters, and I'm not talking about outlaw motorbike or gang, bike gangs. The one, well, although maybe they're similar tactics. The one percenters, one percent who own the means of production, distribution, exchange, and communication. Now, these people, these people are actually supported. These people are supported by a new class. 
and that's the investment class. There is a group of people in this country, about 8 to 10% of the population, whose income is greater than their expenses. So their income is greater than their expenses. So what do they do with this money? They invest it. And they have a return from the money they're able to invest. They're either invested in the stock market where they're assisted by um, people getting refunds for owning stocks and shares. That's right. It's unbelievable. Or they invested in the residential market where they get a, you know, they can offset their losses through negative gearing. Now, to be a member of the investment class is not dependent on your occupation, but it is dependent on your ability to have excess income, which you can invest in the private investment, the private profit market. So there is a a very strongly established investment class which has been assisted through legislation, through negative gearing, through uh, stock market-based legislation which rewards people for owning stocks and shares. And you can be a, a small business person and be part of that class. You can be a doctor and be part of that class. You can be a teacher and be part of that class. So the traditional divisions which are based on the type of work you do and the type of income you're supposed to get because of the type of work you do doesn't apply as far as investment is concerned if you're part of the investment class. It's a matter of disposable income. You have disposable income after your costs, living costs are met and you invest that disposable income, well, then you are part of that investment class. Then you have another class, and this is the third group, which a significant proportion of the population belong to, about 60%. And that's people who work in different occupations, and the occupations are really irrelevant. Some are small business, some are employed by the bureaucracy, you know, government bureaucracy, they're public servants. Some are employed in the private sector. But at the end of the week, their income equals their outgoings. Their income equals their outgoings. What that means is, basically, that they don't have any disposable income to invest. And the majority of Australians find themselves in that situation, about 60%. Many are laden with debt, and irrespective of their income, because of the debt load they have and servicing that debt, they don't have any disposable income at the end of the week. So that's the second, that's the third tier. You've got the 1%. The 8 to 10% of a part, you've got the 1%, which is the ruling class, you've got the 8 to 10%, which is the investment class, and then you've got the great bulk of people. You know, the great bulk of Australians who find themselves in that situation. They're treading water. They don't swim backwards, they don't swim forward. Occasionally they slip backwards and they have real problems, and occasionally they slip forwards and become part of the investment class. And obviously, at different stages in life, you may find yourself 
in a different situation. And then you have the 35% of Australians who rely on Social Security benefit to survive. And this 35% who rely on Social Security benefits to survive basically live a hand-to-mouth existence. And the great thing about being part of that class is the fact that as Christmas rocks up, the philanthropic industry gears up asking for donations to provide food, presents, but mainly food, to Australians in need. Or we have private philanthropic organisations um, you know, asking you to donate to send Australian kids to public schools. Extraordinary. Here we have one of the richest nations on earth and we find ourselves in the situation at the end of the year where people, private organisations, private charities are asking for money to provide food for people on social security benefits to help with accommodation costs to assist their children to go to public schools. These are the kids that are born 200 metres behind the starting line and that's a significant proportion of the population. And obviously, what we've seen over the last few decades, which wage theft and uh, you know the neoliberal rebel- revolution, is that more and more people, whether on Social Security or not, are finding themselves in that situation where although they're the working poor, in inverted commas, although people are working, they have to rely on charity to keep body and soul together. So if you look at Australia in those terms, I think you will find that you will be able to understand the things around you in a much more logical manner. So we go through it again. 1% who own the means to production, distribution, exchange, ruling class. These are the 1% that own 60% of the assets in this country. Then you've got the investment class, those people who at the end of the week have disposable income, which they then invest in various things like housing and shares, where government legislation has been passed to make it very easy for them to invest and actually make a, make a buck out of it. Now, I don't blame people for investing. It's the system. It's the system. Why would you turn down the opportunity of having two or three or four homes if you can get a tax deduction from it if you've got, you know, obviously it's a moral issue, but why would you turn down that opportunity? It's like residential property. Why wouldn't foreign investors come into this country if you open up residential property to foreign investors? Again, again, most of this shit, and it is shit, is basically linked to legislation which goes through Parliament by people we elect to represent us and protect our interests. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So you've got the 1%, you've got the investment class, then you've got about 60% of people who are basically treading water, and then you've got people on Social Security benefits and people at the lower end of the pay, pay scale who can't even meet their financial commitments or responsibilities. So if you look at things in that way and forget about the traditional analysis, you know, 
working class, ruling class, middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class, proletariat, lump of proletariat, and the list goes on and on. You'll be able to understand the type of society we live in. And what section of, of society you live in is dependent, again, in a capitalist society, private investment for private profit, and profits, income at the end of the day. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. So why do we find ourselves in this situation in 2022? Now, I know I say this every week, and I know you're bored with it, but sometimes repetition is the only way to get ideas across. We live in an extraordinarily rich country. We came to this country 234, whatever, years ago, and we took it. We stole it. We took it as our own. And over the last 140 years, we've been able to... We could have created a very egalitarian community, and we saw that to some degree at the beginning, at the end of the 19th century where first we've been introduced every day. For example, 1872, Victoria, compulsory, compulsory three secular education. First place in the world. And the list goes on and on. So why do we find ourselves in this situation? 25 million people living on a resource-rich continent. Well, the main reason is because we have accepted the private investment for private profit mantra as the only text which can provide economic security for us. And the reality is it provides economic security for a shrinking class, the ruling class. And over the last 40 years, and I, again I mention this almost every week, we have seen because of, the, because of privatisation where publicly owned assets which provided income to the state and which kept the private market in place, as they've been privatised, we find that costs escalate for the rest of the community. Then you've got globalisation where we will go to the place where we can get the cheapest, cheapest labour because we're always told that labour is too expensive in Australia. Then we've got corporatisation where you've got a few corporations kind of been what, in charge of various elements of Australian society. Just look at the grocery industry. Just look at the hardware industry, and the list goes on and on. And then you've got um, deregulation, where you remove regulations which were put in place to assist people to survive. Very simple. So we have accepted this mantra. We have swallowed it. We have for generations worshipped at the foot of Mammon. For generations, and we continue to worship at the foot of Mammon. And nothing gives me more, uh, how shall I put it, disquiet than Christmas. Look, I'm an atheist, but I really feel sorry for Jesus Christ. Could you imagine that? an atheist feeling sorry for Jesus Christ. 
And I feel sorry for all those real Christians, not the not the Christmas Christians who go to church once a year, but those real Christians, you know, those followers of Jesus Christ. Because nothing highlights the fact that Jesus Christ is an oddity to be shunted and pushed aside than the Christmas celebrations we see in this country, which nominally still calls itself a Christian country, nominally. Because all the celebrations you see are about consumption. They're about consumerism. Because the word Christmas, it's just basically the birthday of Christ. It may not be his actual birthday, whoever he was, but it's the birthday of Christ. But it's turned into this huge consumer festival, this huge festival of consumption, where people can extract the maximum amount of profit from you. I think this highlights how dominant the private investment for private profit mantra has become today. Now, if you can find Jesus anywhere outside a church in this year's Christmas celebrations, you're a lucky person. You're a lucky person. And whether Jesus Christ was real or not, all I can say is, If he saw what's happening in 2022 in the Western world, he'd be turning over in his grave. Because consumerism, the private investment for private profit mantra, has become our religion. It's not sport. It's not religion. It's about consumption. And if one thing highlights what we've become as a people what our mantra is, is the consume, defecate, die quietly mantra that most of our fellow Australians follow. Consume is the essence of life as far as the majority of our institutions and leaders. Consume, defecate, and die quietly. And that's the key. Die quietly. Don't make a fuss. And if we don't make a fuss, nothing changes. And that's the key to change. Making a fuss. And I encourage you, if you want to make a fuss, In 2023, I encourage you to join public interests before corporate interests. Just go to the website, pipci.net. You can join online. If you don't want to join online, you can always leave a message on 0439 395 489 and I will send you out some application forms. It's been slow going, slow going, but I assure you, The more people that join, the more possibilities we have to flex our muscles and put forward ideas that I put forward on this program. 
ideas which are based on the destruction of hierarchy, which are based on the devolution of power, and which are based on holding wealth in common and using for the common good. And just one last little statement before I disappear off the planet Earth and go back to Mars. Football Australia and the AFL. Now, those of you who've seen the shenanigans in the Melbourne victory, what is it, Melbourne City game, it's interesting. It's an interesting dilemma. You see, Football Australia, or soccer, is a private organisation and the clubs are privately owned by individuals or corporations. They are privately owned clubs, so the membership of those clubs, although the members of those clubs have minimal impact on decisions which are made by the owners of those clubs. On the other hand, I think all the AFL teams, that's the Australian football teams, apart from North Melbourne, are owned by their members. And although the AFL is a conglomeration, the membership of a particular club can have an impact on the policies which are instituted by the executive. And to a significant degree, not that I'm actually you know, supporting what happened in that game, to a significant degree the amount of violence that you see or the amount of frustration you see is directly related to the type of club and who actually owns the club. Is it an owner, as we see in the rest of the world, or is it the membership that owns the club? And if the membership owns the club, they have a greater ability to determine policy. And uh, so think about it. Every soccer club in the A-League level, not below that, A-League level, privately owned. Every club apart from North Melbourne in the AFL owned by the membership. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. Anarchist World this week will continue for the next two weeks. The programs will be pre-recorded so the end of the earth may come and I won't even be able to comment on it. Not that I would have anyway. So please listen to the Anarchist World this week. Don't forget the Tanaminawai Mōbōhina commemorations, which will be held on the 20th of January at midday, which is a Friday. So don't forget that. Go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public. The list goes on and on. YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, phone number 0439 395 489. And don't forget... Keep a smile on your face and stop consuming, defecating and dying. Live life to the fullest, not using their rules, but using ideas that are involved around concepts of egalitarianism, collective effort, mutual aid. Listen in next week to The Anarchist World This Week. Evil minds that plot destruction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah!
Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.